Welcome to Cinemakers. This is episode 43, Interstellar from 2014, directed by Christopher Nolan. I'm Chris Nolan, podcasts. I'm Mike Manzi. And I'm Joey Lewandowski. And Chris, you lied to me. You said you were going to read that thing exactly, and you didn't. Yeah, well, much like a Christopher Nolan movie, I'm full of twists. Ooh, I like that. Uh, so I don't know what your conflicted feelings are, but right before we started recording, you said, I've got lots of conflicted feelings about Interstellar, and I want to hear what you have to think about it. I'm going to say right now, this is my favorite Christopher Nolan movie. I think it's very, very long. It's very, very long, but it's beautiful. It makes me feel things in ways that a lot of his other movies don't. I still think that that maybe it could be a little bit like there could be even more could be a little bit even better whatever but like man there's sequences here that i think are just the best things he's ever made uh, i just want to say i am also pretty much in that same boat like i love sci-fi i love christopher nolan and i love this christopher nolan sort of sci-fi opus that he has constructed here i mean i i feel like it does have some issues so like i'm not you know hundred percent like 99 percent with this movie i'm not like a total 100 but i definitely feel like this movie shows growth and sort of maturity and change as a filmmaker and i think there's some great performances here and some great ideas are raised and yeah i'm just excited to talk about it i did say before we started recording that i was conflicted about this and i don't want to get into it too much i think it needs to come in parts because there's some stuff I like and there's some stuff I don't. But keep in mind, as with all Nolan movies, as we kind of covered our asses from the Twitter brigade before we start each episode, um, the fact that I think that this might be a low-tier Nolan movie, the fact that I think that this might be an easy Nolan movie, um, uh, I think it might be him taking an easy route in service of some pretty pictures, means that it's still, like, at the very least a three-star movie. I've really had a tough time, uh, you know, we all love our Letterboxd here on this show, and I had a tough time starring this. I really don't feel like I can reevaluate this right now. Like, I'm, I'm really conflicted on it. I think I'm gonna give it some time and, and watch it again down the line, which, hey, that's a lot more than I can say about a lot of movies, the fact that I will ever rewatch them again. But, like, a bad Nolan movie is still one of the best movies of that year, so don't get me wrong, it's good. I just think it's... It doesn't hold up on a second viewing in a way that is really unique for Mr. Nolan. Really? Like, what what didn't you like about it the second time around? Or what didn't work as well? So every episode, I feel like I bring up the great quote by Guillermo del Toro, where he calls Christopher Nolan an emotional mathematician because he's so good at calculating what will make the audience feel. And he's, he portrays that in so many ways throughout his movies, both semiotics with visuals, um, with score, all these kind of things. Here, I feel like he's more uh, to kind of go back to the prestige in some way. He's like an emotional magician. And I don't mean that he's making magic on screen, even though he is. I mean he's doing like sleight of hand and making you feel something that isn't actually backed up by anything. Um, I feel like the things that make you emotional in this movie, and this does things to me that no other movie, no other Nolan movie does. This is the one Nolan movie that will make me ugly cry almost every time. And that every time being two times that I've seen it. <laughs> Every two times. But I don't feel in the long term and in what this movie is trying to do like he's really earned it. I feel like he's using easy imagery to pull emotion out of the audience and it isn't supported or backed or earned via the text and the plot of the movie itself. I think 
one of its weaknesses just its balance with emotional exploration and sort of um, intellectual exploration like it just it, it feels like they don't really mesh that well together in this I think he's got a better handle on the emotional thing but I I don't know like this movie it, it affects me hard I mean they are shortcuts but they feel like they're extremely well done in a way that like Spielberg can do it like there's um there's a lot of just trying to access your nostalgia and I don't mean like your nostalgia for like Rubik's Cubes and like Pac-Man and stuff or like Stranger things i mean like deep core emotional like values and things going on and and i think the shortcuts really work with the imagery up front um with the farming and the baseball and nasa and just all that stuff coupled with mcconaughey being just like amazing in this movie like a lot of this stuff like cornfields in this one is like really really working and because like it just is pulling at those heartstrings for me I don't feel like it's cheap. I do feel like he's going to earn it by the end of the movie. Like, that's why I think I actually do kind of like this upon rewatching. It's only like my third time seeing this in its entirety. And right from the start, it, it hit me because I just knew like there was going to be a whole movie kind of like that, crafted like that. I don't know. It's almost like looking through a photo album or something. And so that's where I'm coming down right now. It's cool that you brought up Spielberg because he was actually attached to direct this in 2006, and he hired Jonathan Nolan to write the screenplay, and then I guess he wrote the screenplay, and then he chose to do other projects instead, Spielberg did. So then Jonathan Nolan was like, hey, I've got a brother who's a director, I know who can make this movie, and then he just brought it to him, and he made the movie, you know, I think like six years later he showed it to Christopher Nolan, and he got the ball rolling there. Also, for the record, just a quick aside, today as we're recording this is Christopher Nolan's birthday, so happy birthday, this is our gift to you. Happy birthday, guy. Like, the thing that I love the most is that there's an alien movie without aliens. Like, we are... It's, it's all people. It's all people all the way through. It's people... Like, they always they talk about they. They talk about they. They talk about they. And when you know what the actual, I guess, for... To use parlance of this podcast, what the prestige is, that it is actually Matthew McConaughey in the black hole, you know, using the library to do Morse code to connect with Murph the ghost, and to yeah. save humanity. Yeah, he's her ghost. I think that's super, super cool. I think that works almost better the second time around. That instead of having this mystique, you see that like it's been built and baked in love the entire time. That it was always his love for his kids that inspired him to do this and inspired him to sacrifice himself. Because earlier in the movie, you know, Anne Hathaway, back from Dark Knight Rises, our favorite, I think probably all of our collective favorite part from Dark Knight Rises, back here, and she talks about how, you know, after he gives her shit a little bit for wanting to choose the guy that she loves over the other one with, like, more promising data, she says, well, I can't wait for you to have to make the decision about choosing your kids over the fate of humanity. And he chooses humanity, essentially. And then by doing so, he's able to save the world and save, save us. So I think it works really well the second time around, just knowing, you know, the depth of his love for Murph and I guess to a, to another extent, Timothy Chalamet, a.k.a. young Casey Affleck. But yeah, I, I think it works better the second time around. Um, I, I noticed the cracks the second time around. Um, the first time I was so engrossed by everything and uh, I really loved it. And uh, much like Inception, I guess I think this could be, maybe should be. Inception definitely should be a one and done. I feel like in Interstellar, it'll, it'll depend more on what you're looking for in a film. What do you mean one and done? Uh, like, I don't think you should watch Inception again because the cracks really show the second time through. I think just watch it once, maybe again to kind of get 
things if you missed it the first time, but don't go back and kind of watch with any kind of critical eye. It doesn't hold up to anything in that regard. And I guess kind of what you're talking about with the kids, which we will get into, and they're especially, I just looked her up, Mackenzie Foy, to see what else she has been in. And the fact that it's almost nothing is, is stunning to me. She's also been in The Conjuring, and they CGI a creepy monster face over her in the Breaking Dawn uh, movies. Oh, the Nutcracker in the Four Realms, which I didn't know was a thing until recently. She's gonna, she's the star of that. But yeah, like basically, she was in this and then acted for another year and then hasn't acted since until this new movie. So like, I don't know why, because she's great. She's fantastic. And I guess if we're going to talk about that, I guess um, here's where I kind of am more specific about why I think this movie is cheap uh, in regards to how it makes me ugly cry. And it does. Don't get me wrong. It gets me, but it doesn't get me in a way that, okay, so why do we cry during movies? Like, it's it's a it's a weird question to ask, and I thought about this while and after I watched Interstellar, and it comes down to a couple of things. Like, it's unique to each person. My girlfriend, if there's something kind of dad-related, that'll get her, just because of her past experiences and her life and things like that. I don't really think 500 Days of Summer is a very good movie. I think I, but no, it's a good movie. It's not a great movie. It's not good enough to be where it is on my list of my favorite movies of all time, but I saw that at the right time where a conversation in that movie was like verbatim to one that had recently happened in my life. And when I saw it, I lost my shit because it was weird seeing that reflected back to me. And I think there's some universal themes and images that just kind of get the collective culture to cry. You know, your your dying dog, things like that. And this, this kind of idea of the dad leaving and seeing his kids grow old and not being there and then seeing an old person die, all of that is in service of the plot and it makes sense, but it all seems so easy. I never felt like the movie got me to cry. I felt like this universal concept of those things that I have seen and cried at elsewhere still got me to cry here. And it didn't feel like a unique experience the second time. And it felt to me like it was kind of cheating me out of my emotions for the first time in a Nolan film. But isn't it the way that the film and Christopher Nolan like structures the things together and displays the images and relates you to these characters and to these moments and to these relationships that does that? Like you can't just see arbitrarily an old person die and then cry about that unless you're like the most sensitive, vulnerable person in the world. <laughs> hey, back off. At which, which, by the way, I know you're not. <laughs> um, I mean, film is a total medium, and that's that's everything from the direction to the acting, which top to bottom in this movie is, is pretty great. Yes, Anne Hathaway, Matthew McConaughey just was on a fucking tear around 2014. Uh, even John Lithgow, fantastic. And sure, all of that, the score, it all brings it together into something that swells up at the right time and hits you right in the heartstrings. But I do still feel like it's a little bit insincere because <laughs> at times the movie straight up tells you how to feel. The movie sets up this theme of love transcending time and space, and that's fine if a character doesn't look into the camera and go, I think love transcends time and space. Like, it's setting you up so much for this that it, it just doesn't feel like anything but a, a large, comically squeaky mallet to the head by the end. <laughs> I think just it doesn't bother me because... My first experience around this movie in theaters, I wasn't, like, taken in by the awe of it. I was trying to follow it more like, okay, what are we going to get into here? How deep are we going to get? This is going to be like a nice existential sort of discussion film. And it, it, it's not, really. It's kind. It's not that it's, like, super shallow or anything, but it's not pretentious either. Like, I thought it was going to be a heavy load. And that's because 
it's not really about the story. It's about making you feel a certain way and about a certain time, about like uh, exploration and not just of the stars, but of ourselves inward, you know, looking in toward ourselves and who we are and everything. And if that was sort of baked around the plot a little better or not even at all, if, you know, if they didn't go all fifth element and I don't mind that they do the power of love, I, I kind of quite like their sort of um, like exploration of that in this movie. But if they just sort of left it to just be felt instead of told, like you're saying, you know, and you, you just sort of pick up those cues visually or through the score or directorially, however he, he wants to get them across otherwise, but leave the story about this sort of exploring three planets and how does gravity work and time dilation theory. Like, these are really cool things that could be movies on their own that you can, you know, get emotional responses out of people being marooned or risking their lives for other people and stuff. But you're right, that to me also at times is what reveals its cracks, I guess, like you're saying, is like just its heavy handedness. Like, oh, I almost wish at times that he wasn't trying to please everybody all the time so commercially and tried to sort of revert back a little further into his memento stage and get sort of like more philosophical um, and like maybe just sit down in the middle of this movie and have like a nice conversation about something instead of shoving in maybe like an action scene with Matt Damon. Surprise, it's Matt Damon. Kind of takes me out of it a, a little bit than I was expecting. But, you know, again, I think second time around or third time as it were, for this recording. Like, all that other stuff came washing over me. I don't know that knowing it, and that's why I don't feel comfortable changing my rating on it just yet. You know, I go to a carnival, and I pay the carny a dollar to shoot a basketball or, like, throw a dart. And, like, I know the game is rigged, but it doesn't mean that I didn't, like, enjoy it in that moment. It's just I walked away without the teddy bear knowing, well, it was rigged, and that's fine. You know, that's what, that's what I paid for was this experience. And I still got my money's worth with Interstellar. It just I'm I'm aware that this time that I, I walked away feeling like the game was a little bit rigged. Doesn't mean I didn't enjoy it. It's just I know that Nolan in this really extended metaphor is is the carny. I don't know how to respond to that metaphor. I mean, I like it. I just don't know how to respond to that metaphor. Uh, is carny like a problematic word these days? I don't know. I don't think so. Okay, good. Fuck them. Who cares about it? They don't have the internet. Boy, you know what I would never want to see in a movie again? The whole pen through paper to explain a wormhole thing? I'm good. Let's retire that one. It's funny how that I forgot that was actually in here because I recently watched the new Wrinkle in Time, which I quite enjoyed. I think there's something about the 100-foot Oprah. <laughs> That's the name of my new hardcore band. 100-foot Oprah. But not only do they do the same kind of explanation about um, time travel or, I guess, uh, wormholes in that movie, but they also mention Tesseracts. I mean, in a different context, I suppose, but we get a Tesseract at the end of this movie as well. I think what's difficult about this movie in terms of, I guess, being coming up short from what Mike wants is that they're trying to balance or they, Christopher Nolan, whatever, the Nolans, everybody behind this movie, is trying to balance a very emotional story with depicting real, true, hard science in a way that I don't think has really been depicted on film before. And I think is very difficult for the average filmgoer to understand. And I think that because 
he's trying to simplify these very complex terms because this is all based on writing by like the physicist Dr. Kip Thorne I think and it's all pretty much grounded in reality and like that guy was on set and he was always there to make sure that everything everything was like relatively scientifically factual the fact that there's like time spent devoted to that as well as this emotional story as well as you know just a narrative plot I just don't know that there is enough time even in a nearly three hour movie to be able to do everything. You know what I mean? Like, I feel like there's a lot going on here, and I don't mind that we don't go as deep as we could, because there's essentially, like, three major things going here, and I think they're all done well enough and visually spectacularly enough and emotionally well enough to leave me satisfied on just about every level. Yeah, I mean, I would definitely rather have it the way it is than not at all. Especially the time dilation stuff, which is just some of my favorite stuff in science fiction in general. It's like the point the audience to a novel called The Forever War about basically a soldier who uh, keeps traveling back and forth between the battlefield and Earth via light speed and he just like every time he comes back to Earth it's just like hundreds of years in the future and he becomes one of the oldest living humans by doing this the most. It's really interesting stuff and I would way rather have it than not and you know a really good example of realism technology how things would be but are different possibly um, a really great example is TARS and the robots in this. You know, like this here is, this is like the anti-David from the Alien series, from Prometheus, right? Where like the argument there... Oh, do not get Chris started on David. I can tell you that much right now just the android idea in general even in Blade Runner with Tyrell Corporation and stuff like the idea of having them look like us because otherwise it would be kind of unnerving but yeah. in, what ends up happening is it's it is unnerving because they look like us i love the idea and concept of tars because it's the complete and total opposite he's he's a tool he's tactile he's like you know the ultimate swiss army knife or something and then he's just got like this human voice behind it like it's, it's kind of off-putting at first, but it makes complete and total sense. And by the end of it, I'm Tar's best friend. Like, I love Tar's and that whole concept. So when he kind of hits on something, he really gets it right. And when he just kind of grazes something, um, it's still good. I mean, he's still, he's not getting it wrong, but like, if he's not spending enough time with it, that's okay, because at least he's bringing it up. Well, as you can imagine, there were a ton of trivia entries about this movie on IMDb. And a lot of, like, there weren't as many as the Batman movies, but I feel like the these were overall, on average, the most interesting. Like, there's a lot of things I was like, holy shit, that's cool. And one of them, which I deleted because it was way too long, was basically about how the original version of this movie had so many differences, like Murph was a boy and all these different things. The plot ended. And there's something about, like the, Ch- like, the Chinese were able to, like, create black holes and wormholes, like, on a whim. And they were able to, like, manipulate time in ways and, like, all this crazy, ridiculous stuff. Anyway, it sounded like a worse movie than what we got. But the reason I bring it up now is because in that version, TARS and those robots, and I guess Case is the other one, were humanoid. And I love the fact that they're not. Like, I love that they're just, like, these weird, unique... The visual metaphor that he's going for, I guess, is it looks like the monolith from 2001, but also kind of looks like the monkeys from 2001. Like, it's sort of both of those wrapped in one. And I just love everything about Tars. I love that Tar... I, I love the design of Tars. I love that he's kind of an asshole. I love that he's, like, 
super smart, that he has the honesty setting, that he has the trust. Like, there's just so many cool things about Tars that he feels like a really fully fleshed out character in ways that, like, other directors would probably kill to have, and other screenwriters would probably kill to have in their movie. Like, he is such a good overall character, and he's just like a box, really. And it's just, it's great. In my research, I learned that Christopher Nolan's favorite movie is 2001, which kind of blows my mind because I couldn't think of a director who's like more dichotomous to everything 2001 stands for. Like, it's just such a cold, vicious, emotionless film. Fucking Christopher Nolan being like a huge fan of that blows my mind. But yes, there are so many 2001 shoutouts throughout this film. It's just, it still feels so weird to me. And um, speaking of, of other films that Nolan must be a fan of, and the science, I guess, to tie that in, I did write down that the second act of this film feels like Nolan's Apocalypse Now, and the third act of this film feels like like what Neil deGrasse Tyson looks up to jerk off to on Pornhub. But, I mean, like, so did you guys, the third part, you know, we talked about, it's pure science. I couldn't possibly give a shit if the science is real or not, as long as it's, as long as the movie works, and this movie would work, whether the science was real or not, so I I don't give a shit. And from what I gather, it's real enough. So which, is this when he enters the black hole you're talking about? Which part? I see, like, the, the last third of the movie or the last act of the movie is, like, as soon as they... As soon as Matt Damon and they leave in separate ships and leave that ice planet, that's sort of, like, the last... That's where it gets, like, super science Yeah, that's where I would put it. Okay, yeah, so the with the plan to transmit from the center of the black hole and then falling into, like, the other dimension, basically. Okay, okay, yeah. And, and I guess maybe that's where the, the kind of... The clutter of ideas in this film, and I do think the screenplay is the weakest part of this movie kind of falls apart. Um, I feel like the, the first third of this movie it could kind of be its own thing and maybe should be its own thing. And then the second part, uh, really, like I said, it, it really is pretty obviously his space um, apocalypse now. That straight up with fucking Went Best... Uh, what is it? Went, went Bestly? That's the... Wes Bentley? Yeah. <laughs> That's the guitarist for Limp Bizkit, I think. Wes Bentley. Shout out We Are Your Friends. Shout out Zack Attack. Woo woo! He straight up says, like, it's the literal heart of darkness. It's like, oh, come on. Okay. Sure. The word literal is used a little too much. Um, Damon says, you literally raised me from the dead. It's like, well, no. But I, and I get what you're doing with the whole faith thing. We'll get to that later. But the whole middle, like, the, he's he's Kurtz, and they're, they're going down the river, and, and he's the, the fragile, like, the id of humanity kind of showing that, like, he, he's the one that's kind of the evidence for humanity being a blight, and... It all feels a little little on the nose. Uh, it's not that I don't enjoy any of it, but the middle third of the movie just feels like a different movie smashed into what surrounds it. And I find myself liking what surrounds it significantly more. And I've talked about Nolan's movies being a little long, and I wonder if that stark difference is what makes this, more than any other Nolan movie to me, feel like it is as long as every fucking minute of it is like this is this is the most 170 minutes feeling movie i've ever seen like it really does feel would you say that every hour feels like seven years no no (laughs) i've certainly seen movies like that any of the recent x-men movies but this just feels about three hours long and that hurts the middle act i feel like it does. Like, it feels long, but I also think in a weird way that it contributes to the grandiosity of it. Like, I don't mind when movies that aim to be this big feel this long. Like, a movie like 2001 also feels long, but it's also going for that 
scope. Like American Honey is this long, and it doesn't feel, at least to me, it doesn't feel that long. If American Honey felt this long to me, I would probably hate it. But it feels like it's short and it's quick, and it just because it's like it's a small little movie with like small little hopes and ambitions and dreams. This, because it feels so big, I don't mind that it feels like it takes all afternoon to watch because it should. I feel in my I don't know why. Maybe it's just my brain thing, but it feels like it should take all afternoon to watch because of like how big it is. Yeah, and you know Nolan is going like Kubrick was for awe and spectacle and trying to really get real about like nail the realism and the science about it and kind of take it seriously and get real about it and that that you know to do that you're gonna need time take your time now i also kind of agree that he pushes it like kind of far in this like as far as bringing things up like i said earlier like when they wake up matt damon and it kind of becomes like an action movie for a while like i almost feel like that's against the nature of the movie where then at that point maybe matt damon and then should have just had like a long conversation about something and taken off together but that's just not this movie and that's i'm fine with that like that's the other thing what it does end up accomplishing i'm also okay with like even if it's not what i necessarily want because like to be honest like this somehow most movies are granted like one big sort of leap of logic and for any other movie it would be tars you know you introduce tars and that's it you better not get weirder than that but this movie is not only going to have like a wormhole it's going to have a black hole and then it's going to have like alien worlds that we're going to visit and then it's going to have a higher dimensional you know <laughs> like tour through a tesseract and behind a bookshelf like it's going to get fucking weird and keep getting weirder and just the idea that it doesn't collapse like the tesseract at the end that it actually comes together and forms something solid is is crazy to me like i just feel like in in the way a Kubrick was able to pull that off like only he could I feel like only Nolan at this level really could have done this I don't really know if Spielberg I mean maybe I mean it's hard to say obviously you never know Spielberg's great but it's hard to tell knowing his other sci-fi movies if he really could have done what Nolan did here part of what makes it feel so long to me I think I don't know if this is actually the case because it didn't click with me until closer to the end of the movie I wish he would learn how to hold a shot for a little while I think he's getting better. They're, they actually, one of you noticed, sorry, but if you noticed in the trailer, it was basically just that shot of Matthew McConaughey driving away from his house, and like that was kind of it. So I feel like he's aware of that shortcoming. Yeah, and that's almost like a weird inversion of what I would expect from Nolan because he's holding there on the emotional stuff, sure, and that that works for me. That's one of the scenes that you know that that'll her in in her bedroom begging him not to go. That's one of the two scenes in this movie that'll get me get me ugly crying. Don't get me wrong, I think it, it works just fine. It just feels like for as much of a aesthetics guy he is, and this being his like aesthetics movie, uh, even more so than Inception, it kind of blows my mind. He never holds on something grand and universal and abstract for anything in the Tesseract, like anything in space. He just doesn't hold on a goddamn thing for more than a couple of seconds, and I think that that is a huge shortcoming of the the filmmaking aspect of of this movie and i think it does so much happening so quickly kind of does lend to the fact that this movie feels so long as well um i wish maybe dunkirk he'll learn well dunkirk's only 90 minutes like dunkirk is like half this length whoa wow this podcast has built me up so much to being excited for dunkirk like i feel like i can only be disappointed now well, you know what I wasn't disappointed with in this movie, out of anything, is the depiction of the wormhole. Like, I that just blows my mind to this day still. I think, you know, I could just rewatch that entry into the wormhole over and over and over again. And also just like the, the visualization of the black hole on the other side. 
with the ring around it almost, or just you could kind of see the dust and everything. Like, this is really just beautiful stuff, and it is a little bit of a shame, you're right, Chris, that, like, when we're in space, we don't have those shots, like, in 2001, like, the symmetry and all that. We get a little bit of, with Saturn, but not enough for my tastes. Yeah, like, we spend way more time in the actual vessel than sort of just, like, the silence of the vacuum of space. So two different things. Number one about the wormhole. I don't really know how to put these in context, really, but the computer energy or computer power needed to like render that stuff was ridiculous like the the wormhole sequence i think was like 800 terabytes of information and i think like single frames took like 100 hours to render like it's just like it's spectacular because it's spectacular you know what i mean like it's it it is because it is like they put the effort into it but the other thing you said that i want to really really want to talk about is that we talked a little bit briefly about the score i think the score is magnificent this is also apparently at least as of this movie i don't know about dunkirk but and i also don't know if he did the score for Dunkirk. I'm assuming he did. But this was Christopher Nolan's favorite Hans Zimmer score for one of his movies, which I firmly agree with. But the more impressive thing, I think, is how fucking deafening the silence is, at least twice in this movie. That there is when, I think when they jump, when they go to Saturn and they jump into the wormhole, I think there's a silent thing there. And then again, right after Matt Damon blows up the his like little pod or tries to, you know, depressurize or whatever and that blows up, we like cut to the outside of the ship and it's just silent. And it's like, oh my god, like it's, for a movie that is so, at times, loud, like I had my uh, surround sound like cranking and it felt good. Like when, when they're actually taking off, like the whole, like it feels like the room is shaking, like it's so cool. And then it cuts to silence and it's like, oh, wow, okay. And I think for a movie to be so effective, both in times of noise, but also in times of silence is just awe-inspiring, really. Did the IMDb Tribune in the trivia talk about how... Um... Apparently, any time that the main characters are in danger or are in like a, a race against the clock kind of situation, the score becomes 60 beats per minute so that it subconsciously feels like a ticking clock, which I think is amazing. Oh, oh no, cool. I didn't see that. No. Oh. No, but they did talk about how when they go down to that water planet where it's seven years for every hour, the score gets real quiet and you just sort of hear like a tick, tick, tick. And each second, the math breaks down that each second they're there is a day and a half. And so every time you hear a tick, it's just like, oh. Day and a half. And so, you know, when you find out that – so that poor guy, uh, what's his name? In the ship? Yeah, Romilly. He's like, I'll stay here. I'm going to learn some things. And then he's like, I've waited years. Like, just like his simple line, like, I've waited years. It's like 23 years and four months or whatever. And then later he gets blown up because Matt Damon's an asshole. Like, this poor guy, like, he should have learned. Just stick with Anna Hathaway because when you're with her, bad things don't really happen. Oh, he's the he's the affair haver in Annihilation, apparently. Oh. I didn't even remember him on the mission. I remembered him in the NASA sequences, but I thought it was a different, I didn't realize that like because he didn't see he doesn't seem like he is like adventurous and wants to really be there because he has that nice little moment when he's like you know like there's really just like a couple like centimeters between us and outer space and i can't really handle it and mcconaughey gives him like the nature sounds to listen to um so like he's the worst guy to get trapped alone by himself for like 20 years up in that ship anyway so like yeah this poor guy it was (laughs) never should have really gotten on the ship at all if I could just go back quickly to the the music stuff about this and everything, did you guys get a sort of like religious vibe from it? Like it almost felt like church organs. It's exactly what it is, church organs, yeah. That is a very interesting contrast uh, for a space movie. It 
kind of feels perfect, just like the idea of it being either a religious experience or literally like drifting, you know, within, you know, like eternity and God and whatever, whatever you want to call it. Just like the awe of it is really heightened by the context of that type of music uh, in relation to what they're going through and everything. And it just really that too, you know, not that I'm a very religious person in general or anything, but like just the, the sounds combined with the sights also help sort of tug at some chords that were like uh, made me feel tense or uneasy at times or whatever but like it was definitely eliciting a response out of me and i think that's on purpose i think it ties into what this movie is trying to say in general and go back into the archives and see that i've been kind of hard on nolan in regards to his his themes and his politics nolan is a, a very apolitical kind of kind of guy i don't think i don't think zizek would have much to say about uh christopher nolan films but this i think is his most political film and i think a lot of that comes down to a logic being kind of the hero of this film him strictly saying like if we don't listen to logic and science if we take the very conservative republican route we're going to be living in a world of dirt and corn but also him saying that faith in this movie while everybody has it anything that can be referred to as religious or does refer to religious elements like uh, fucking matt damon kind of being a lazarus character is it's proven to be false or proven to be a tangible thing that everything that could be chalked up to religion or faith or god is actually man-made the faith is actually within ourselves and the goodness of mankind and i think that is even though this is a very atheistic movie i think it is that is nolan's faith in a lot of ways is that faith in mankind and we've seen that in all of his movies uh if there is one theme this kind of ties it together uh, for Nolan and this this being kind of the Church of Nolan film I love how those organs swell up at all of the right times and yeah that that's kind of this movie is kind of his hymn towards his, his his devotional in so many ways thematically and I can take away in my opinion kind of his emotional aspects here but I do think he ties a lot of his themes together in a surprising way in this film and I uh, I really do appreciate that one thing that that I didn't even consider that I'm just, you know, as we're talking, I, I'm realizing is like, this is an extremely, I don't know if patriotic's the right word for it, but American movie, like, which feels odd. Like, if you look at this crew, like, visually they're diverse, but they're all Americans. Like, it's kind of, and it is NASA. I mean, it is just a little, I mean, I don't, again, it doesn't bother me. I don't knock it or anything, but again, it's just, as an afterthought, it just feels a little odd about that. There is a wistful American tattered flag sequence that is straight out of a fucking Michael Bay movie. Well, yeah. because they talk about, like, this isn't like an alternate reality in some kind, of, or maybe not an alternate reality, but like a, a cynical version of this reality, where they talk about how the moon landing was faked and it was done to bankrupt the Soviets. So I feel like in this world, and they even talk about it a little bit, like when Matthew McConaughey first finds or refines or whatever the NASA base, Michael Caine is like, oh, well, you know, when we were running out of food, they couldn't publicly fund us, but now they were then they realized that they needed to fund us. And I just feel like based on the chain of events that the, this movie has set up in terms of how we got to this point, it feels like no other country has the money or is willing to spend the money to do this. So even if there were sort of qualified other people, I just don't know that they would be there because it feels like they sort of go to like an international space station sort of kind of thing, but it's just all America. Like you're right there. Like it, But I feel like it's just because that's from the point of view. So it is weirdly American, but just like, and I don't know what that says. I don't know if that's like for a reason or not. Because I mean, it's not like Christopher Nolan's American. He's British. So like, I think it's just a choice. Like, I don't know that there's actually 
actually well he's he's both right like he's a dual citizen yeah, like he's yeah. born american no i hear what you're saying like that's the thing about it is i can't put my finger on kind of why and then that's okay like it doesn't really bother me and, and i do like that context about it and again it's another just it's another thing you know where i wish we got a little more of i suppose but uh, i take what i can get I think it's pretty simple, frankly. All of that moon landing imagery and like the flag and all of the references to that is because he loves Stanley Kubrick and Stanley Kubrick faked the moon landing. Hold on, though. Here's here's the thing, though, that I also I caught this time around. If no one, you know, believes that we went to the moon and the way, you know, our society is going now, I could understand if in 20 years people actually believe that kind of propaganda is being taught. Um Aren't they seeing these launches in like a very sort of nearby area? Like, don't they see the shuttle go up or any of that kind of thing? Like, so there is, you know, I'd I'd rather not think about it. But if you do, yeah, the sort of, you know, those little nitpick cracks can emerge from time to time. But, But that also boils down to a great idea that just he can't really afford the time to get into. Um, All it really says is McConaughey is like a great parent. He's from the before times when people (laughs) learned the right things and he's passing that on to his daughter. He'll homeschool her from now on. And look at her. She grows up to solve the gravity equation and save humanity. You know what I'm saying? So like all this sort of new fangled educational stuff that's replacing, you know, our our education now, like it could go, go to hell because like, you know, the old ways are going to forge the future. Something that, on that same line, that Nolan does in a really interesting way is some visual storytelling. He never really goes super into depth about, like, how fucked the world is, and I think that's brave. Uh, I think it would have been easy to show DC or a major city and show how terrible that is compared to, you know, Dust Bowl, Iowa, or Kansas, or wherever this takes place. But the basic idea that the New York Yankees are playing a baseball game to, like, a Little League crowd. When you think about that, it's just like, oh, man, this country is fucked. Like, they still are holding on to baseball, but the Yankees are playing in front of 400 people in Iowa. The country is not doing well. I was going to ask, because, like, they talk about going to the game, and Matthew McConaughey's like, oh, yeah, it's Murph's favorite team. And they're wearing, like, I think it's, like, the Yankees against the A's or something. But I was I was like, because I saw one of two realities. Either number one, that is devastating, number one. If, if that's, like, if the, if the reality is that that's the actual Yankees. But number two, if it's just, like, the actual Yankees are gone, and this is some other kind of, like, local team. Like, they have, like, a local Dust Bowl league. You know what I mean? Like, it feels like either one of them, it's just, like, this is our last hope at retaining normalcy in a world in which nothing makes sense anymore and I think either one is like equally depressing but I think I saw two different readings for that I'm not sure which one's right but like they're both real sad yeah I saw the the latter one about it being like a weird farm team the first time and this time I kind of read it as like oh man because he didn't show anything else outside of wherever Nebraska and outside of space and so in my mind that was his kind of way of just being like it's not good everywhere else folks they're not even a dust bowl league they're a dust storm league because when that storm rolls in it's just like one of those images that i'm in awe <laughs> like i just get an instant reaction out of that and of like terror and so bravo i was almost i, I mean this is a joke but i was half expecting superman to like crash land a, a, a airplane on the field there because like they all like stop the baseball game like i feel like it's a it's a big movie cliche for like for superman returns right yeah i thought of uh, men in black one when like i think it's the mets and the guy like misses the catch because 
Edgar stole the UFO over Queens. <laughs> yeah, I just feel like there's like this history. Like I almost there's got to be because everything's on the internet. But I feel like there's got to be like a supercut of like baseball games being stopped due to wacky shit in movies. Like because <laughs> it's like the the iconic green grass and then the player and then like you hear the crack of the bat and then like the player just doesn't follow the ball because like something weird is happening overhead or whatever. So I was sort of hoping for a Superman crossover, but we didn't get it. Alas, alas. A critic I really love, Walter Chalk, compared this movie. He says, cringeworthy but true. Um, he compared it to Field of Dreams in that it navigates a mess of cornfield and ghosts to locate a hard emotional truth about fathers. Holy shit. Yeah. Which is a comparison I never would have made, but I, I quite love. That's awesome. I thought about a, a lot of that comparison. I didn't, like, put it all together like that, but there is... I think there is, like, again, archetypally, you know, the hard Midwestern father, farmer type especially, yeah. who, you know, it, they're, they're children just seeking love and, and sort of finding it in, in unexpected places. Can we, let's talk about, because, uh, like, Murph is obviously the star, and Little Murph is great, and Jessica Chastain's great, but I feel like there's not enough, and I know it's not his movie at all, but... I remembered enough from the first time around that the son was so insignificant to the grander scheme, sort of. He's essentially just there, I feel, so that they have reason to return to the farm 35 years later. You know what I mean? Like, it feels like he's there because she's not going to own that farm, and they just need to go back there so she can, like, reconvene with her ghost. But... He was so insignificant in my brain that I didn't even pay attention long enough to realize that that was Timothy Chalamet, a.k.a. the star of Call Me By Your Name, uh, and also Lady Bird, as a young kid. And then he becomes Casey Affleck, who has, like, one teary... He sends a couple video messages and then punches Topher Grace. Like, that's his arc. Like, it just... Like, is he underserved, or is it just, like... Is he just there as, like, a function of the plot? It doesn't make me like the movie any less, but I just feel like there could have been more done with him, but I don't know what that would have been. Yeah. First, I just think there's a seamless transition of actor, as far as that goes, over the video calls. I think that's great. But I I agree with you, too. I just think we do spend more time with Murph in general, but I think even her, uh, her stuff's a little underserved as well, as much as we get from it. One of my favorite sequences in this is when he gets back... from Waterworld and he's playing the video he's playing like all the messages back and you kind of see the little boy grow up into a man and talk about having a little kid of his own and then that kid dies and he's like not going to talk to McConaughey anymore but then he gets the message from adult Murph on her birthday and so it's really interesting how the movie sort of like kind of starts with the father and son have like a good relationship when he leaves but when he's gone that relationship is destroyed and then the daughter and the father don't really have the they don't leave on the best of terms but ultimately in the end they reconcile and make up I guess or they just you know they just reconcile but yeah I just think there's again there's just not enough time with everything else that's going on uh, but I'm glad we get what we get it it is a little strange though how he just kind of becomes an angry man like that's I think my main uh, problem with it not that he's not in it enough but then when he's in it he's just like a bundle of anger and won't reason and that just seems against the way he was built up so for that reason it's just uncharacteristic but i what i do really love and you didn't i don't think you met i think you you sort of got up to the point that i like what might be like one of my favorite cinematic transitions in this movie if not any movie is 
in that sequence where, well, I mean, I guess it is kind of the birthday, the birthday message, but it's the fact that like she sends the first message. It seems like the first message to him, and then she turns off the camera, and then all of a sudden we're in the office, we're in that place with her, yeah. and it's like, oh, like this is now like that's such a smart transition to be like this is also her movie now. Like we don't know who she's growing up to be, and now we see her as Jessica Chastain and not just Mackenzie Foy, and it's like, oh, we're now here too, and this also matters. And then she gets to be, a, she grows up to be Ellen Burstein, which means, like, that might be the, that would be the best trio of actors to play a single character yeah. in history that I can think of off the top of my head. I'm sure there's been three people playing one character before, and, like, your moonlights and things like that, but this has to, this is probably my favorite. That, that's, that's a strong pedigree there. Yeah, it's great. And Ellen Burstein with the first and last lines of the movie, I just, man, I just really like, like, the whole Murph stuff is just great. Like, I love how much he loves Murph, and, like, it just devastates him, and, like, there's, like, little moments that are so good when they when he first goes to find the NASA station before he knows what it is and she's like I want to come with you he's like no you can't come with me I'll be back soon and then she's hiding in his car and like she like bursts out like that's adorable but then there's like the heartbreaking moment where like he's driving away for real and he like kind of peeks aside under the blanket to see like hoping that he gets to see her one more time there and that it's like just that little subtle moment is just devastating it's just it's just so good the, the part that really gets me the most in this entire movie and is is that is toward the end of that video sequence when she comes back on and she's like this birthday is significant because i'm now the age that you are when you left and they cut back to mcconaughey and he has just lost it and i lose it and it's just like my room is turned into water world it's just incredible but like it also feels cathartic to a degree you know like this movie makes me feel good like i'm not crying i'm crying because i'm sad and emotional and stuff but like it's kind of a good cry for some weird reason maybe because i don't cry enough it's possible so it's a good thing i watch a lot of movies that help me do that so yeah like i don't feel bad like i don't feel like i know i'm being manipulated like you said like i know there's a certain level of mcdonald's to this but like it's so well disguised and it's being done in 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 all the right ways like it could be just done so much worse i just think of how much worse this has been done and i'm just so grateful that uh that he's doing it his way and that his way is a good way and I think it works because it's he's so like Matthew McConaughey is so commits to it and he's just so good in that moment and I don't know what like he the actor not the character but in the scene where they're filming it like I don't know if he's just there staring at nothing I don't know if he's there staring at like an empty screen I I don't know what he's looking at but whatever it is like it is devastating and I think that you like you're saying like it is manipulative but at the same time because everyone is so earnestly committing to this it doesn't bother me either that like they might know that this is sort of like a an easy cry for the audience maybe but like the fact that it's just so genuine it just works for me and i i ugly cry at the end in the hospital uh that's that's the one that really gets me and again you know nolan doesn't get enough credit for his little sprinkling his little dusting his little coating of the rim of horror in his films we get a good jump scare here with with uh dr man's death the the first kind of jump scare in a Nolan film, and I mentioned existential horror in um, The Prestige. Uh, go back to that episode. But the idea of, like, being a dad and then going away and coming back and your daughter being older than you and watching her die, horrifying to me in a way that I didn't know would get me, I guess, consciously and subconsciously. Um, also the fact that perhaps this is not that weird in this future because all of his great-great-grandchildren are very casual about the fact that 
he's walking into that room at the end. No one gives a shit that, like, great-great-grandpa is just in the room who we've, A, never met, B, is 130 years old, C, looks like he's 35 years old. Like, what is happening here? And everyone knows him. Everyone knows who that is. Like, he's a hero. Yeah, he saved the world. Yeah, yeah. Right? they've read about him in history. The one guy's like, I've got a project on you, like showing him around his own house. <laughs> so, so not only is he like a hero, but he's also grandpa. And they're all like, he can say goodbye to grandma and like, and just leave. like, it's just what? Yeah, it's fucking weird. That's it's a wild scene, and it just it's just so it's just so kind of left in the background for that the cry moment, and that's fine. But there is a real subtle horror to all of that as well. And I also think what's weird in the like not in the movie because I think in the movie it works because we're also like wrapping up there and we can't spend too much time. But like what I think is weird about the world is that like all he wants to do is like hey, so what kind of crazy like he's a NASA pilot at heart, you know, he was a retired pilot and now he's a pilot again and whatever. But like he's like staring at the ships, like the crazy futuristic ships that are being built, and the guy's like, hey man, like what, like what are you doing? Like come on, like let's let's go. Like what do you look like? Hey guy, give him like thirty seconds, to, like look at this crazy technology <laughs> that like he helped like inspire essentially. That like he is because of him that any of this or you are here. Like let him look at a ship for like a little bit. But the guy's like, hey come on, like we're like we're on a, we're on a, we're on a time schedule here. Like what like what are you doing? And it's like, hey guy, relax. But then he gets to see uh, the American pastime again. He gets to watch baseball played in four dimension, inception dimensions. I don't even know what you'd call that. Tesseract baseball. It's like it's like Ring World. There's something I don't. This yeah, it's something I don't think conceptually they pulled that off quite right. Like it just feels like they wouldn't build a house upside down from a baseball field like that. <laughs> like they would build it next to the house if they knew gravity was going to warp and everything. But um, that's definitely just like, oh, uh, we're here at the end. Like everyone's kind of relaxing from this adventure. Like let's just throw in a laugh and a callback and like, oh, things are back to normal. Kind of. I mean, they're on their way back to normal, I guess. Um, we're floating in this giant space ship yeah that kind of that kind of threw me here but i, I was like oh we're at the end that's uh, whatever what the other thing that was kind of weird is he had like 50 of those talking heads in his house if you notice there was so many of those there was like one in every room i just even thought like when it was a museum that they wouldn't have even that many in there talking at the same time and those things also kind of look like the monolith too like mini monoliths and everything like that but when you said talking heads i thought you were referring to the um the the flat screens showing ken burns dust bowl is that what you were referring to yeah yeah what did you think about the use of that i, I thought that that kind of pulled me out of the film at a couple of points and it I, I didn't think he needed that to make the very obvious parallels something that i i didn't really appreciate too much i liked it to start the movie and I just felt like it was an unnecessary callback to be like oh this whole time it was like you said like a documentary being played um, it, it keeps in line with his sort of film logic though the idea of like I don't just have a voiceover it's a guy reading a letter or someone on the phone and you're going to reveal that in like another scene or something so like I can understand why he did it but I also feel like it was a kind of an unnecessary touch I completely forgot that those were in the movie, and when that started, I was like, what is this? Yeah, it's, there's not necessary. There's something, hold on, let me see if I can find the trivia. There's something like, after watching the documentary The Dust Bowl, Chris Nolan contacted its director, Ken Burns, requesting permission to use some of the featured interviews in the film. But yeah, no, it's, it's Dust Bowl plus Ellen Burstyn. Before we go into, like, IMDb trivia too much, because we haven't really talked about it yet, we need to talk about Matt Damon's character, because I think this movie is like an exercise in being too on the nose, but holy shit, like, it was probably my least favorite part this time. 
This this stuff is my least favorite stuff. Yeah. Doctor Man, come on. Yeah, I think it even just goes beyond it sort of devolving into now it's the Marooned on Mars movie or whatever, and there's evil, one of us is bad now kind of thing. Like, it, it's beyond that. Like, I just feel like the movie is going in a different direction than when we get here. It feels to me, it just feels like a like a left turn, uh, and it still kind of feels that way. And I may, I guess maybe it's the one thing... You know, I've been saying this whole time, like, at least we have that, like, at least we have this, at least we have this, like, I'd rather have it than not have it. And I guess with Dr. Man, I wish, I truly wish, like, this one sequence was something a little different. It was amazing to me how obvious it is once you know he's bad. Like, I feel like you're able to pick up on him being sort of weird and suspicious the first time, but remembering that he is a villain, I was like, oh, literally everything he does is, like, suspicious. Yeah, because, I mean, he's not following convention necessarily, Nolan, that is, you know, why can't Michael Caine be the only villain, the liar, you know, make him the villain, and wouldn't it be more interesting if they picked up another colleague because we lost two, and like, two down, one up, that kind of thing, like, I don't know, I just felt like the movie was more interesting than this at at this point. I do remember, though, that this was another one of my long line of didn't watch trailers. Also, they, they sort of hid the fact that he was in this. And I remember when he shows up, I saw this movie in theaters in 70 millimeters in the draft house, which, again, I don't really I feel like my brain is broken because like when, when things are shown on film, it just doesn't work for me. Like I, I'm fine seeing a pristine, beautiful digital print. But anyway, I saw it in theaters with my sister and I looked at her. I was like, what? Like, what is he doing in this movie? And then he's there for like five minutes. He's like, oh, no, he's a bad guy now. He's there for another five minutes and he dies. It's just, oh, OK. But I don't mind that entire sequence. If and this might just be me like justifying it, if only for the line that like Matthew McConaughey says to Anne Hathaway, like "I'm sorry," like he made her choose this planet over the guy she loved because this felt like the re- the right data it was the better data. Which when you get there, should have been like, "Oh no, that's not true at all." Like it's just a nice planet. Like we're not going to live on a nice planet. Like what are you what are you doing? But the, at the end, when they are able to leave, and he's just like, "I'm sorry," like that for me, is worth the, not mediocrity, but like the predictability of the sequence, because it feels like a, I didn't think you were right, but sometimes, because she's saying like, maybe we have to follow love, like maybe, like we did not invent love, like love is a thing that's always existed or whatever, which I'm sure might be something that maybe possibly bothers Chris, but at the same time, like, he's like, I'm sorry that like, I should have listened to you, like, he's like, I'm you're a scientist, but like, that's also kind of science, like, love is a weird kind of science, and maybe I should have listened to you, and I didn't, and now here we are, and we might all die because this guy is a monster. Especially considering he will adopt her theory at the end to communicate with Murph, right? Like, he, you know, I'm kind of coming around to it now. Like, it almost doesn't matter as long as you're right. He has the realization that he had, like, this moment of arrogance and, you know, he constantly thinks about getting back home, right? Because he even jeopardized the mission to the third planet by considering how much fuel they would need to get back home. And if he didn't do that, they could have gone to the third planet. And, you know, if that didn't work, at least they could have gone back to the second planet, at least in something. So I'm down with this now, I guess, that as long as he finds out that he's wrong and he has like that sort of moment of hubris where he can realize that and apologize for that like that because that goes along with i guess my overall favorite theme that works best is just that sort of introspection like going Mm -hmm. out to explore but then exploring inside yourself to to change you know and to like genuinely change like not just fake a change and like i feel like that's happening like i just think that 
in a way, like the a, a major theme of this is that like essentially love is science too, and especially since man is hate, right? Like that's what it, and I get like it's so hokey that his name is Doctor Man with an extra N, and man is hateful and all that, but like it does it, it is over the top. But again, this is a mainstream movie, you know, and I just have to keep reminding myself, despite how it looks, you know, it looks hardcore, hard science, and there's plenty of those moments, but ultimately it needs to be sort of very clear about itself. Yep. I just, uh, he just feels like an extra exposition machine in a way that is maybe not as bad as, I don't know, Inception's exposition machines were like, here's the rules of this overly complex universe, and Interstellar's exposition machines are like, let me spell out the very obvious themes of this movie. So I, I maybe I'm a little bit more offended by it in this one, and that's why it doesn't work as well for me. I think it's it's unnecessary. It doesn't mean there's not good scenes with him. I, I think his death is great. Like I said, a good, uh, the first Nolan jump scare. Yeah, I don't know. It, just, it, it drags too long. I don't love it. I like the stuff around it so much more. It does feel like a different movie to me. Joey, the fact that you were, were taken aback and surprised by his inclusion in this movie... I didn't know that Topher Grace was in this movie. Okay, how about we give some something to Topher Grace? Huh? Huh? Topher Grace, the uh, the third team up. This is another Oceans team up of Matt Damon oh. and Casey Affleck and Topher Grace. And now Anne Hathaway in part eight, but they weren't Ooh. in part eight, but she's part of the world there now. That might have been more interesting if they woke up Topher Grace and it was like, oh, this super smart science guy is like this wiry 30-year-old something or other. I don't know. I would almost buy that more from Topher Grace the way that Matt Damon's acting. <laughs> Spoilers for a movie that no one listening to this, if you haven't seen it, will ever see. Isn't that what he does in the Predators movie? Yes, yes, that is what he does in the Predators movie. He, like, befriends everybody, and then at the end he's like, I was actually, like, the fucking serial killer guy. Yeah. <laughs> oh, we didn't talk about Michael Caine in his, I think, sixth Christopher Nolan movie? Yeah, there's not a lot to talk about with him. He unnecessarily says some poetry, and then... He doesn't go gentle into that good night. I think it's one of the ideas in this movie that is um, a little too schmaltzy, <laughs> is, is maybe the word, a little too saccharine. I, I don't think yet it adds anything to the film, his whole arc. I, I like his one scene with John Lithgow. I wish they had more time together because they really just felt like with their limited contact, men of two completely different types of ideologies, you know, like one was definitely like, um, science, I can't kind of comprehend like the average person on this like basic level and then John Lithgow's like I'm salt of the earth like I don't you know I don't care how the tractor gets built as long as it works kind of thing I don't know I just I love this sort of they're from the same era which is even more interesting and so like I was just really interested in how people who survived like all this famine and war and all this stuff how they were sort of relating to each other now that they're sort of like the last of their generation yeah, I got real confused in that part because they're like, because Casey Affleck sends a message like, ah, oh, Grandpa died. I buried him in the backyard. Then the next scene, we see Michael Keane. I was like, wait, isn't he Grandpa? And I was like, oh, wait, no. Different old white man. It, but he's Anne Hathaway's dad, right? Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Professor Brand and she's Brand. Yeah, that's her dad. And so, like, that's what's that's what's super weird and, like, doubly emotional that Murph sends the message that she's like, hey, Brand, your dad died. Oh, also, by the way, you're fucked because he lied to us. And, like, and also, you knew. And so it's like Matthew McConaughey seeing probably the second message ever from Murph. Yep. And it's like this really angry, bitter, spiteful message that isn't about him at all. Well, I guess it is at its core about him because that means that, like, 
he was lied to, that he will never see his daughter again, and that it's not only Michael Caine's fault, but also Anne Hathaway's fault for, like, supposedly knowing. But it doesn't seem like, like she didn't know. Like, she thought that he was, that he had solved it. They're like, oh, no, 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 he solved it. He just didn't solve enough of it or yeah, whatever. Yeah, I think it was Matt Damon who turns around and goes, oh, yeah, I knew. Oh, yeah, because they all knew. Yeah. And now I'm going to fuck you guys because I'm getting back no matter what. So in the timeline, how long ago was the Lazarus mission? Did they say that? I think it was 10 years before they launched, those guys went into the black hole and they got the three beacons back. Okay. There is another thing, just in terms of the, because like the, the timelines of this movie are so weird in that time is literally relative, depending on where you are. And I was one of the other things on the, on the old IMDb Tribune is that when Wes Bentley gets knocked out by that wave, like he might not be dead. And the fact that they could go back to him and rescue him, it might only take a couple hours. I mean, that would be like decades on Earth or whatever, but he's only been there for a few hours. So if he's just unconscious, he might still be alive. So it's, it's weird how like they literally go through this movie spans probably 80 years maybe 85 years 90 years and yet he could still be only nine hours old like he might be unconscious for nine hours like it's just it's 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 crazy well just very quick when you think about seeing the generations you get from Lithgow being the grandfather all the way down to the brief glimpse of the very casual great-grandchildren this movie runs total generations and I, that is one of the subtle again visual storytelling techniques that uh, Nolan sprinkles in here that does give this movie a epic grand spanning space and time kind of feel that I do like and I do appreciate. Yeah, and I've always felt that one of the things he does best with his films is play with time. Like, he's almost a master of, you know, time and everything, time and space. Hey, I mean, I, I think this movie is pretty linear. It's just that there's lots of time jumps, and the only one I'm not conclusive about is the one at the end how much time how much quote-unquote earth time he's spending in the tesseract or when he's sort of ejected from it and it collapses like when he goes back through the wormhole you know when did he re-emerge orbiting saturn like i think like it has to be at least 50 years after she solves the gravity equation because when murph shows up she's like 90 you know like she's really really old they are no longer the same age but ultimately yet yeah, it doesn't really matter as much talk as there is about you know the gravity warping space time and the distance here lasts uh, this much time there like it's mostly just like for plot conveniency kind of thing like it's cool and everything but they're not gonna dive into like the philosophy of time dilation and anything it's just used as a ticking clock and that's cool that's fine like it creates a lot of tension and everything like that but it also you know lets you go home and sort of investigate and answer questions that are definitely being raised you know while you're watching this in your mind like Chris said way earlier like just like the sheer creepiness of being younger than your children or, or looking younger than your children or by all means you know he is in his hundreds but you know he's really only what aged like a couple weeks time is uh what do they say it's wonky or something on doctor who timey wimey a flat circle yeah let's go with that because that's mcconaughey exactly yeah let's tie it back to that time is a flat circle speaking of you know possibly going back to get people how do you feel about the final images of this movie this is another thing that to me the idea like oh go get her doesn't work it's kind of a flat emotional final image to me i think maybe it's because it just blew its load with the emotion of reuniting father and grandma daughter but like I, it just doesn't do it, it's it's weak it's it's a limp kind of uh, the whole idea of going back and getting in halfway doesn't do anything for me at all well, I think what's weird is that, I mean, it, so number one, it works for me because 
it just worked. Like, most of this movie works for me. But I think what's weird about it is that they're very clearly not the love story. She was in love with a guy that we never meet. And so it's like, Murph is like, go get her, go get Brand. It's like, oh, like, they're going to reunite their lost love. But like, that's not what happened. Like, they're just friends. Like, they're just buddies. And so it feels like it set up, that sets up this, like, emotional love. Like, I'm going to go get the woman I love on another planet, in another galaxy who's all alone. I'm going to go save her life. But it isn't that. It feels like it, it's, it wants to be that or it's, like, pretending to be that, but it's not. And it's just kind of, it's kind of strange. But that said, I do like it. I like it. I don't love it. Like, I don't love how, like you're saying, how it feels like, oh, you guys were meant to be together and everything. But what I do like about it is, you know, go out there and sort of finish this mission with her. Like, you guys can be the new Adam and Eve, in a sense, of this new planet. Because the last and final shot is of Anne Hathaway alone on, basically, the new Earth. And she is, you know, to me, that evokes, like, Mother Earth, kind of, like, I see a woman standing on a planet alone, like, in front of, you know, the future, quote-unquote, or whatever. Like, that's what I'm thinking of. So it is kind of, I like it on the level of, he's gonna sort of go out there and be with her because they've been through this experience and this mission and they're going to complete the mission and he'll be the first with her to sort of set up the new civilization for when the mothership gets there. And it also has this weird to be continued feel to it too, which I don't have any faith that this is ever going to have a sequel of any kind. <laughs> like it, it almost doesn't have like that grand finale feel that I was expecting, uh, but it's more sort of open-ended. Yeah, I like it. That's that's my but. But I mean, like, I also like all of it. But you know, I get it. But I like it. I get it. But I like it. Are you guys ready for some trivia or anything else that we want to talk about? We can go to the Tribune. There's a lot of trivia about the books in Murph's library and about how they're books that either he read or that have story similarities to what's going on here or that draw inspiration or whatever. One thing that I think was cool was that in Terry Pratchett's Discworld books, which I know the author, I've never read his books, I don't think, there's a principle about L-Space, which is short for library space, that the mass of information contained in a large collection of books warps space and time, and in consequence, a sufficiently large library allows the visitor to access any library library anywhere in space and time like that i like that idea in this movie it feels like it's a very personal wormhole which i actually like more that's not like he can go anywhere he can just see any history of murph which i like a lot but i do like this idea that like the books contain universes and contain worlds and contain multitudes and in this world in the science fiction world you can sort of bend time and space to go anywhere friend of now and again d loves him some terry pratchett um has tried to get me to read him many times but uh, there's too much too deep but uh, I, I've had many high recommendations for Pratchett's work, so I can see that being a reference, a literary reference that a lot of the people who love this movie would also enjoy, for sure. Nolan definitely knows his audiences. Brand, Anne Hathaway says to Cooper at one point, try to breathe as little as possible. That's after Matt Damon like smashes his face mask, uh, which is another line that is in The Prestige. There was a cool line I picked up this time around early on when uh, he says to Murph, something along the lines of I can't be your ghost right now and then later in the movie he ends up being her ghost which I just want to say quickly the first time I saw this I really feel like I figured that out immediately and it just didn't bother me like I was like I think that's awesome somehow he is communicating with her and it's going to take the entire movie to find that out right from the start like I was like this is intriguing like how is this happening it's something that never would have occurred to me there were two moments in the new Mission Impossible movie that I kind of figured out and I was... Was it the Wes Bentley moment? No. 
no, not the West Bentley moment. I was like, because I, I saw him in the opening credits. So I was like, where are you, West Bentley? And then finally he shows up. But there's two moments that I figured out, and they're the same kind of moment, if you know what I mean, Mike. And I'm just like, I wonder. I'm like, oh, I bet I know what happened. And it was exactly that. And it didn't bother me at all because it's just so cool. And like, there's also like twists on top of that. And I guess it's a moment where the audience gets to be ahead of the characters for once, too. Yes. And I think that I don't mind that if the movie does it well. Like, it almost feels like, in a way, Christopher Nolan could be like, hey, just so you know, the ghost is, is him. And it would maybe make the mystery a little bit less, but I feel like it, it amps up the love story. You know what I mean? So I feel like it, it, wouldn't, it doesn't ruin the movie if you figure that out, just because if that's what you're watching it as, you're like, oh, if that's him, that's him like fighting back through time or however he's doing it or whatever, and he just wants to get back to Murph. So I, I, think, it, I think it works well that way. Okay, I'm going to admit that I was watching this for a completely different thing this time, and maybe there's not an answer to this, and maybe I should watch one of the 10,000 ending of Interstellar Explains on on YouTube. What does he Morse code back that fixes the fucking planet? Well, TARS helps him transmit the data from the core of the black hole, which is like something about gravity how gravity works differently so they're able to use that to power the gravity drive which will then launch the mothership from NASA. Because remember they say that Michael Caine figured out the gravity component but he couldn't rectify it with the quantum mechanics of it all or whatever so it's Yeah, it keeps changing every time he tries to solve it. So the idea is they're going to shoot the spinning baseball place into space? Yeah, exactly. Like, that whole lab is like a centrifuge, and so that is... So, essentially, the ship they launch him from is inside of another ship, which I realized this time around, but yeah. I mean, he also has to leave sort of coordinates to find NASA and all the other little clues that they figured out in the beginning and stuff, so it's really... TARS transmitting the data. It's just he needs her to look at the watch and come to the realization that he's talking to her. And so the concept at the end is full-on abandonment of Earth and just like launching a new strictly American Earth into space. (laughs) Interesting. I wish I'd thought about that before we discussed this because I think that says something. Okay. Okay. Thank you. I just, I just, I realized that I didn't fucking think about that for a second as I was watching it this time and didn't have an answer to it in my head. Elysium. Elysium, yeah. <laughs> I think the line, Mike, was once you're a parent, you're the ghost of your children's future. Or he also said I can't be your ghost or whatever. But there's a couple lines he talks about being uh, a ghost for Murph, which is pretty cool. Okay, so actually, let me go back. So awards, it was nominated, it won the Oscar for Best Visual Effects. It was nominated for Best Original Score, Best Sound Mixing, Best Sound Editing, and maybe one other one, maybe, that I don't think I copied right. And it was nominated Golden Globe for Best Original Score, but did not win. What's weird, and maybe just it's just a coincidence, is that this is the second time that a Hans Zimmer score for a Christopher Nolan movie was nominated for a Golden Globe against a Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross score for a David Fincher movie. So Inception went up against Social Network, and this went up against Gone Girl. So it's weird that like these directors, who are both very, very good, Fincher coming sooner rather than later, but also who knows when, to Cinemakers, have found these composers that they like working with, and they're also on the same, I guess, release schedule, and they're also making really good movies with really good scores and it's just cool that like they're just butting heads you know twice in five years is gone girl good no i i like it's it. well made but I, it, I hate the book and the movie's just only a little bit better i like the story i don't know that i like the execution but i like what it was going for this is the first time that, that christopher nolan and jonathan nolan have worked on a completely original script everything else was an adaptation of something so there's that this is also the first time since insomnia that the word fuck has been used in a christopher nolan movie that i think it's matthew McConaughey saying to Matt Damon, he's like, you're such a fucking coward or something like that when they're on the ice planet. 
because I heard it and I was like, oh, okay. McConaughey not getting any kind of, no acting awards at all in this movie. Well, I really think it's just, yeah, it's just McConaughey that could have gotten one, I guess, but nothing from him. Wow. I mean, he got his, he got his award later, I guess, was Dallas Buyers Club. No, Buyers Club was the year before. Oh, okay. So maybe that's part of why he didn't get the nod here, but like definitely deserved. I mean, I mean at least he's been acknowledged. The reconnaissance is real. All right, all right, all right. And speaking of that, uh, the movie that Christopher Nolan saw that was like, oh, I want McConaughey in my movie was Mud, and Mud is also awesome. So he saw Mud and was like, I want him in my movie. It's been on my Netflix queue for like years at this point now. Watch it. Edit to Chris List. Okay, the majority of shots of robot TARS were not computer generated. Apparently, a lot of this movie, as much as they could, which it feels like par for the course of Christopher Nolan, was practically done. And so TARS was not computer generated for the most part, but rather it was puppet controlled and voiced on set by Bill Irwin. So he, I guess he was just like running around with it and then they removed him digitally from the film and they also puppeteered case but josh stewart did the voice for that so i think there's like a robot puppeteer just like running around on set but that's cool that there's actually like a, a actual tars on set while they're making the movie it feel he feels more like a droid now that I think about it, right? Like a Star Wars thing almost or something. And the way he's executed too, that they had a guy that they just sort of erased from the movie who was just like puppeteering him. Like, that's really cool. I'm glad about that. Anne Hathaway suffered from hypothermia while filming in Iceland due to the fact that her astronaut suit was open while they were filming scenes in the icy water. So who says acting's not hard work? I was saying before that uh, Kip Thorne's works were the inspiration for this. And he was also like the advisor for parts. Uh, they, he also inspired Contact, which is another Matthew McConaughey space movie. Nice. You know, I was getting feels about Arrival watching this again to some degree. And I couldn't quite place my finger on it exactly, but... A, a redhead in science with aliens. Or not really yeah. aliens. I mean, well, yeah. Yeah. Fate of the future. A surprise explosion by a traitor. Yeah. <laughs> Time travel of sorts. Right. Sad uh, parent-child shit. That makes me ugly cry. That's it. I think that was the connection. Like, had to... Right. Had to sacrifice sort of my relationship with my children for the future of humanity. Also, beautiful score in both movies. Uh, on the Nature of Daylight in that movie, holy moly. For the cornfield scene, Christopher Nolan grew, or the team or whatever, the, the production company, whatever, grew 500 acres of corn, which he learned was feasible after he produced Man of Steel. So I guess for that movie, they planted the corn too. And so they planted all this corn and then wound up selling it for a profit. So good on them. Couldn't just give that corn away. In Hollywood, nothing's free, baby. Oh, so the only other thing was that uh, Kip Thorne laid down two guidelines early in pre-production to Christopher Nolan. Nothing would violate established physical laws, and all the wild speculations would spring from science, not from whatever Christopher Nolan wanted to do. And Christopher Nolan was like, cool, let's do it, as long as they don't get in the way of like us making the movie that we want to make. But then apparently he was like, hey, so like we're going to fly faster than light, and... Kip Thorne's like, no, 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 no. We're not doing that. Remember rule number one? So they he talked about that. But apparently there was a great battle there. The movie feels, again, scientific. Who knows if it is or not other than Neil deGrasse Tyson, but, <laughs> you know. I fucking hate this trend. Like, Neil deGrasse Tyson just shitting himself into Twitter and being like, well, uh, actually, Die Hard definitely couldn't happen because the constellations were not right for the wind to blow northwesternly after the explosion on the... Just shut the fuck up. Nobody cares. Watch a movie and get out of your own stupid asshole head for a minute. Yeah. Basically. I think what this did... I mean, because this, to me, feels, like, very realistic and grounded. And, I mean, part of it might just be the way it's shot and the look of it and everything, too. But, I mean, this is something Nolan's good at. Like, he did this with Batman. You know what I mean? Like, he's the one who took Batman and turned it from sort of where it was as a joke or, like, at least, like, bright and colorful and was like, nah, like, Batman can exist in the real world and here's how it's done. So, like, this, to me, feels like... and. 
I feel like Nolan in general, and I got this a bit with Inception, but we don't spend that much time in the real world, that this is the way it would be done if it could exist. If this was how you could do it, this is the way it would go. So I get that vibe. I also want to point out that there is a, I forgot to watch it because I forgot that it existed and I had plenty of time to watch before this, but I just forgot, that the nerd writer I was talking about how he did a video on The Prestige, which was great, also did a video on this movie where it's called... He does not like this movie. I watched it just before. No, yeah, it's called When Spectacle Eclipses Story. So that's negative in and of itself. I guess it's like a beautiful movie, but it's in sacrifice of the story. But I'm also going to watch that. But there's also, he also did one about how good Arrival is and about how Arrival is basically taking the idea of bad movies and sort of being like, well, this is how you actually like take tropes from bad movies and they do it in a good way that actually works well. It's a well-made like theory video. He compares it to Avatar, which I he lost me there a little bit. I think that is... This movie, the Avatar? Jake Sully. Yes, I think that is a little ridiculous, but he does say that he it's because he holds Nolan to such a higher standard, which I can agree with. It's a little all over the place. It never it doesn't land nearly as well as his um, prestige video does, but uh, it's yeah, it's worth watching. And also, like a, a month or six weeks ago, he also did one about the shaky economics of MoviePass, which, as we're recording this, still exists, but ran out of money. R.I.P.D. I went to the theater today to buy a ticket because it looked like it was in the app, and then they're like, hey, sorry, we're having problems. I was like, cool, R.I.P. Good thing I signed up for AMC A-List, so check out AMC A-List. They might not even be on NASDAQ as of tomorrow. Anything else that we want to talk about about Interstellar before we wrap up and then come back for the season finale, as it were, uh, next week with Dunkirk? I'm sad we're coming to an end. I've I've really enjoyed this ride, um, and I'm so hyped for Dunkirk. I don't I don't hate this movie as much as I kind of made it sound. It's just it's just that I see more flaws in this than I was willing to forgive for most of Nolan's movies. I think it's a mess. I think it's saccharine, but I still I think. I think I think it's good, but uh, or at least I think I think I enjoyed it. I think I need I need one more watch to really settle in on this one. I'm just glad that's coming to an end too. It feels like it happened quickly because I just looked, Mike, and episode ten, which is the Dunkirk episode of Soderbergh, was Aaron Brockovich, which we, means we went from like ninety to two thousand in ten episodes, and like we did like thirty three or something with him, or thirty four. Like we just like a ton of Soderbergh. So I'm really happy that we did this, but I'm sort of sad that like there aren't another ten or twenty movies to do. If there were, they wouldn't be at this caliber, this quality. I don't think so. I've been having a great time talking about Christopher Nolan, and yeah, it does feel like just went by so fast. This has just been a blast. I'm so glad that like every movie that we've been talking about, like I really like, um, even the ones that like I had to give you know a hard time to a little bit. Like I really had to stretch to give them a hard time, but can't always just agree and agree. I and mean, that's that's no fun to listen to. I feel. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm very excited just that. Whatever he's doing next, we're going to be able to talk about it together and review it. And I sometimes wish that he made movies a little bit quicker, but I also realize, like, when his movies come, like, they're well worth the wait. And um, I'm just much happier that he's taking his time to do whatever he wants to do. So I know what's coming next. We got Dunkirk. I've only seen it once, and I'm really excited to watch it again. I've been waiting to watch it because um, we had started to do Cinemakers when it was, like, right on my pile next to my TV of things to watch next. So I've been putting it off. I'm very anxious to get to it. I'm very excited about next week, even though it's the end of the road for now. It's going to be a little bittersweet, but... 
It's going to be a lot of fun again, and I'm really looking forward to it. So for all the fun that we've already had on this run of Cinemakers and next week's episode of Dunkirk, you can go to cageclub.me, facebook.com slash cageclub, or at cageclubpod on Twitter and Instagram. Go to cageclub.me slash newsletter. Sign up for our monthly digest, the best of the best of what the show has to offer, what the network has to offer. You can check out every month. I always recommend my favorite episode of each show. So it's usually for... Now and again, for Chris's show, it's usually the Side B, because Side B gets real weird most of the time. For Mike, it's his his monthly show, which I guess came out, oh, last week, on the, the same day as The Dark Knight Rises would have come out that week, too. But just go to, you know, caseclub.me slash newsletter, sign up for that newsletter, and just see what's going on. There's a lot of shows. We have 19 now, if not more. Who knows? Who knows what the future holds? As we learned in this episode, time is real weird. So maybe there's more by now. I don't know. But just go to caseclub.me, poke around, and just see what you like, and just let us know. Say hi. Email us. Mail bag at cageclub.me. I'm Joey Lewandowski. I'm Mike Manzi. I'm Chris Podcasts. And we'll see you next time over in Britain for Dunkirk on Cinemakers. Cinemakers.